2 Timothy 4, verse 1 says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And that's what we seek to do now as we open God's word together. And I encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, last week we read about a man who was uh, in Jericho who was a blind beggar and Jesus ministering to him by giving him the gift of sight, having mercy on him in that way. And here in our passage today, Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through it. And so we're going to be reading today about another installment essentially in Christ's journey to Jerusalem where he would go to pay for the sins of of mankind and we are... uh, moving our way toward that moment when he enters Jerusalem. Actually, that will be next week uh, in chapter 19, verse 28, when he uh, officially arrives there. But all of Luke from chapter 4 on essentially has been moving us in this direction, especially from chapter 9 on, though, when Jesus said that he set his face toward Jerusalem and he's been on this path to get there to pay for sin. But in the meantime, he's been interacting with lots of different kinds of people in lots of different circumstances, and has been teaching and has been exposing people to the truth of the Word of God and exposing to the, these people to the fact that He Himself is the Son of Man and the Son of God come to uh, redeem uh, broken, fallen sinners. So I'll be reading today Luke 19, verses 1 through 27. For now, I'll be reading just down through verse 10. So Luke 19, 1 through 10 for right now. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Even that that last verse there, verse 10, is essentially the mission statement of Jesus. He has come to seek and to save the lost. A beautiful statement of God's mercy toward us in Christ. In late May of 1889, a small town in western Pennsylvania, just east of Pittsburgh, received torrential rains for days on end. This wasn't terribly uncommon uh, at this time in history in this particular place, but what made it unique was that up at the top of the valley where this town was situated was a lake that wealthy uh, businessmen like Andrew uh, Carnegie and people in that uh, highfalutin uh, group uh, of, of society at that stage in the late 1800s, uh, they had created a lake up at the top of this, uh, 
this valley so that they could have boats for recreation, so that they could have a summer getaway not too far from, from home in Pittsburgh or wherever else in that valley they lived in that uh, part of Pennsylvania. It was very uncommon at that day to be able to afford a boat or a house on a lake, but that lake had been held up by a dam, and that dam had been deemed bad for a long time. People had said, this is really not good. This needs to be repaired regularly. And instead, they would just look the other way. And you could assume that the people who were in power knew what they were doing, but that would have been a really bad assumption. And so every year, every spring, as the spring rains came and as the winter snow and ice melted, people would say, this is the year that dam's going to break. And that, in some places, you know, 90 to 100 foot deep lake is all going to pour down on the valley. And people would say that every spring, and people would laugh every spring. Kind of like before 2016, people would say, this is the year the Cubs are going to go all the way. And they sing songs about it called, someday they'll go all the way. And then you come to the end of the year and everybody laughs because it didn't happen again until 2016, just to be clear. But finally, the year came where uh, it was clear that it was different from other years. People would say, you know, I've never seen cows drinking water out of Main Street. There's clearly a problem here. The water's higher this year than it, than it has been in previous years. The water was rising fast. The, the banks of the rivers, because of the amount of rain they had gotten, and so they assumed that there was tremendous danger up at the dam as well, up in the, uh, at the top of the valley where this town was situated. And so sometime between noon and 1 o'clock on this particular day, late in May of 1889, a telegraph message came into the dispatcher's tower from the next tower up to the valley, up the valley to the east. And essentially the man who received uh, the message would, uh, was, was unclear about what to do with it, but the message itself said, South Fork Dam is liable to break. Notify the people of Johnstown to prepare for the worst. And it was simply signed, operator. So that message got passed down from one telegraph station to the next, gets to Johnstown. The two guys in the telegraph station look, read the, the telegraph, look at each other, and laugh out loud, and then just put the, the message down. Those men made a decision that day about what to do with that message. They had a decision to make And ultimately, it's possible that one of those two guys who read that message and then looked at the other and laughed, maybe one of them thought, yeah, we really should do something about this. But when he made eye contact with the other guy and they both started laughing, at that moment, the the pressure was too much to do anything besides just laugh and just pretend like, well, just like every other year, we joke about this and nothing ever really happened. So surely nothing will really happen this year either. But the pressure was so high that it unduly influenced the decisions that those men made. They decided just to put the note down. Social pressure can unduly influence the decisions we make as well. Have you noticed that? Have you ever tried to share the gospel message and thought, "Mm, if I say what I really think I need to say, what the Bible says, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. If I walk out of this situation right now, it's going to be embarrassing. People will laugh at me and say, oh yeah, he's just that church-going guy. And we let social pressure affect what we do. It unduly influences the decisions we make. We have in our passage today, both here in verses 1 through 10, which we've just read, and in the parable that, that follows after it in verses 11 through 27, is people having to decide how they're going to respond. In the face of social pressure, 
how they're going to respond to Jesus, to the claims he makes, to the work he does. But what this passage shows us is that how you respond to Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make. How you respond to Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make. And so I want to urge you today, as we read this passage together, to follow Jesus no matter what other people say, no matter what the social consequences are, I want to urge you to follow Jesus as this is the most important decision you will ever make. How should you respond to Jesus? Verses 1 through 10 here, the story of someone perhaps you're familiar with because of a childhood song you sang or heard. You should respond to Jesus with repentant faith. Respond to Jesus with repentant faith. We mentioned Jericho, the scene of last week's passage as well about the blind beggar. And here Jesus is passing through this town about 15 miles to the east of Jerusalem on his way to Jerusalem. And in this town is a man who was rich. And maybe you could just stop there and say, well, that sounds a lot like chapter 18, the middle of chapter 18 and the rich young ruler and what Jesus told him to do was to sell all of his possessions as a way of showing his love for Christ and he went away sad. What we have here is another man who's very rich and he goes away joyful, which is a theme all throughout Luke of people hearing the news of Christ and responding with exuberant joy, even in chapters 1 and 2 and what we often consider kind of the Christmas passages as we uh, approach that time of year now. But the reason this guy is rich is perhaps different from the guy in chapter 18. The reason he's rich is here in the middle of verse 2, he was a chief tax collector. So you have regular tax collectors, and we've encountered lots of those in this passage. The chief tax collector is the worst of the worst. So essentially what we have here is a man who was systematically oppressing people on behalf of the Roman government. So not only was he... Uh, working for the enemy in a sense. He was doing it in a way that made your life miserable. So he is the chief scumbag, we might say, in uh, modern parlance. He was a jerk. He was untrustworthy to the extreme. He was the scum of the earth, and no one wanted anything to do with him. So he's the chief tax collector. But he had heard, just like that blind beggar in our passage last week, he had heard of Jesus. He knew some things about Jesus and he just wanted to get his own eyes on him. But he had a problem. And that problem was he was really short. And we don't know how short, but short enough that if you're in a large crowd along a narrow street packed with people wanting to see Jesus who people are saying, hey, he's coming this way, he couldn't quite get to where he could actually see him. The crowd was too thick. So you have to do something. This past summer, uh, late July, I believe, I took uh, one of my sons, Grant, to the Bears practice up in Lake Forest. I had gotten these free tickets to go watch them practice. And uh, afterwards, it was the first year that they allowed this, I guess, after COVID, they allowed the players to go interact with the fans afterwards. Well, we hung out on one side of the field and got Roquan Smith to come over. This guy who at the time wasn't even practicing because he was holding out for, you know, $100 million dollars. But he came over and started interacting with Grant. I recorded the conversation of him just having this bantering conversation with Grant. Tons of fun. Well, then we go around to the other side, and there's Cole Komet, and we get his autograph. And then there's, I know you guys don't care. There's one of the other players, and we get get his autograph. 
Well, then we go a little further down, and there's a huge swarm of people. And I knew what that meant, but I wanted Grant to be able to tell what that meant. So I got Grant up on my shoulders, and I handed him my phone and said, here, take a picture. Like, reach your arms out as high as you can and take a picture of what you can see from up there. Because all I could see were the tops of heads. And he took a picture, and if you look at the picture, I can show you later if you want, there's this guy in an orange jersey in the middle of hundreds of people surrounding him. It was Justin Fields, and he's actually a lot shorter than those other guys I was talking about. Cole Komet's taller than I am. Uh, Justin Fields is more of an average-sized guy for, for football players, but you could see his orange jersey in this mob of people, and the only reason you could see it was Grant was on my shoulders holding his hands up, taking a picture of it. That's essentially what Zacchaeus was doing. There's somebody I've got to see, and in order to get to him, I'm going to have to get creative. And so I might even have to be a little undignified about it. Maybe it strikes you as, as normal that he would climb a tree in this situation. We need to realize, I don't think there's any other stories in the Bible where somebody climbs a tree to see somebody else. I can't think of any others anyway. And so this was simply not acceptable, socially speaking. This goes back to that idea of social pressure can force us to do things we, we maybe don't want to do or we, we shouldn't do. He was going against social customs so that he could finally get a a sight, get his eyes on Jesus, so that he could go home to his family afterwards and say, hey, honey, you wouldn't believe it. I got within 20 feet of Jesus today. You know that guy we've heard about for, for weeks or months? I was within 20 feet of him. That's what he could have said. Kind of like when you go home and say, hey, I saw the presidential motorcade today. Like, it was so cool. And you kind of tell everybody that you see, uh, everybody that you know what you saw. Well, in this case, he just wanted a glimpse. And what I want to say for our congregation, for just a generic application, is we need to be the kind of place where when people need to see Jesus, they come here. And we warmly welcome them. And I am so thankful that you do that. And I want to just encourage you to keep doing that. Keep making this a place where when somebody needs to know who Jesus is, they need to get their eyes on Jesus, so to speak. They can come to Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church and say, I saw Christ there in the people who were there and in the message that they sang to one another and that they preached to one another. This man, because he was so rich based on his oppression of other people, probably typically avoided these kinds of scenarios. Like it would have just been uncomfortable for him to be out interacting with the people that he had just scraped their money off of them from. He probably would not have been invited to their parties or their social gatherings. And here he is in their midst trying to get his eyes on Jesus. And immediately when Jesus comes up to him in verse 5 and sees him, he knows who he is. We don't know why that is. Maybe... Uh, From a divine perspective, the Holy Spirit told him who this was. Maybe he had interacted with him at some point in the past. We don't really know. Luke isn't concerned to share many details with us, and so we don't need to go too far down that road, but it's interesting to us nonetheless that he says Zacchaeus immediately, that he knew who he was. Maybe Zacchaeus had that bad of a reputation that even Jesus, humanly speaking, knew who he was. But he says to him, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And you might be a little, like, kind of scratching your head a little bit, be a little confused. Where's the gospel in this, I need to come and stay at your house? Well, let's remember for, for a moment that earlier in Luke and throughout the gospels, Jesus often says things like, the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head at night. 
You know, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man does not have, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man does not have a place to lay his head. So Jesus was always looking for a place to stay, and it would have been a tremendous honor to be the, the one, you know, who Jesus said, hey, let me stay at your house tonight. And this, this idea where he says, I must stay at your house, gives it an air of there is a divine plan behind this. Like, you have been chosen to host the Son of God. This is your opportunity. And Zacchaeus lapped it up. He hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Whereas that other rich man in chapter 18 went away sad, Zacchaeus joined the the crowd of people who had interacted with Jesus and responded with joy and gratitude. But not everybody else in the crowd that day uh, was so happy about this. Verse 7, when they saw it, they all grumbled. Luke isn't even telling us who the they is anymore. He's done it so many times. The opponents of Jesus were so sick of Jesus and what he did and who he interacted with, the low lives of society, that all they can do is grumble over and over again. And you, know, you can look throughout Luke, and again, I would just kind of lay this out for you to do this. You can use various uh, sources online or in other books and just look at where else in Luke people have complained. And it's all over the place. People were sick and tired of what Jesus was doing. You can also look at all the places, going back through up to chapter 5, I believe, uh, was the first one. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, like of all things. And this happens throughout Luke as well. So Luke is telling us the same kinds of stories over and over again to tell us who Jesus came to rescue. He came to seek and to save the lost, this passage tells us. He came to give medicine to the sick, to give life to the dead, to give a home to the homeless. He came as the Savior. And this man, Zacchaeus, was going to do whatever he could to get to Jesus. And I want to urge you to do the same thing. Maybe you need counseling in some form. There are people in this congregation I would love to set you up with, so to speak, to go out and have lunch with or to meet here in this building, a safe, warm environment where you can have conversations behind closed doors about whatever your need is to help you get to Jesus. Or maybe it's an intense Bible study and there's a, a, you know, you're a man and you would love to study the Bible with a man or you're a woman and you'd love to study the Bible with a woman or with a group of women. We'd love to set those things up. Maybe in order for you to get here, you simply need transportation. Or when you get here, you want to know that there's somebody who will sit with you. We can help with all of those things. We just want to make sure that you know that you need to get to Jesus and that you have a way to get to him, whatever that's going to look like in your circumstances. And Zacchaeus did everything he could to get to Jesus, and Jesus welcomed him to the disgrace of these people who grumbled because he was interacting with sinners again. These unseemly deeds that Jesus was doing, and these people seemed to be lapping it up that they could keep catching him in, in a web, so to speak. What Jesus, I'm sorry, what Zacchaeus does in verse 8, though, may surprise you in light of what Jesus told the rich young ruler. What did Jesus tell that man to do? That guy said, yeah, I've kept the law like my whole life. Like, tell me something complicated I should do to have eternal life. And Jesus responded and said, well, go and sell all your goods and give them to the poor. Here, Zacchaeus tells us, I've sold half of my goods. 
So what's the deal here? Why wouldn't Jesus tell him, well, that's only half. Go, go sell the other half. Well, for a couple things going on here. One is, and I'm just going to flip back myself here, all the way back in Luke 3. I realized a year and a half ago when we preached that passage, basically, uh, th- that this may not have come to your mind when you read this passage, but what John the Baptist told people to do was to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, live your life in a way that shows that your heart is bent toward God, that you are humble over your sin. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then he goes on and people specifically ask him, the crowd say, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. And he goes through this kind of idea with different citizens in that community. And essentially he says, give half of your goods to the poor. What you're doing is thereby showing fruits of repentance. And so perhaps when you read this, you would say, yeah, but Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus, repent and believe the gospel. And what we need to step back and realize is sometimes the New Testament kind of assumes or implies that you're going to fill in the blanks a little bit. So, for instance, you have Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And maybe in your repent and believe mindset, you want to say like, but there's no repentance there. Come on, you know, get, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, repent of your sins and you will be saved. Or maybe you read Acts 2.38, I think. Repent and be baptized. What? That makes it sound like baptism, and this is directly quoted in the, in the Nicene Creed that we read a few minutes ago together. That makes it sound like you don't even need faith. You just need to repent and be baptized, and then you're saved. It's implying, like, there are all these different facets that the New Testament pushes together and combines together in different relationships, and essentially Luke is assuming Jesus is assuming that we're going to connect the dots naturally. And we're going to say, there is repentance, there is faith. How do we know, let's just work through this passage, how do we know Zacchaeus had faith? And just looking at your Bible, where is Zacchaeus' faith? Well, for one, he ran ahead and climbed a tree. At great social cost, probably. At great social embarrassment. Like, oh, he's so undignified. This jerk won't even... uh, won't even stay out of the trees. I mean, come on. And then verse 4, he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. That's faith. And then verse 8, he says to Jesus, you know, basically, I'm going to do whatever will demonstrate my faith and my repentance. So verse 4, verse 6, and verse 8 demonstrate Zacchaeus' faith. Where's his repentance when he says, I'm bearing fruits of repentance. I'm giving half of my goods to the poor. What about that other half? I'm keeping that so I can pay back all the people I've ripped off. Okay, so essentially we could say he is giving all of his goods away, but he kind of has to do it in a judicious way because he's ripped off so many people in his personal life. What I'm saying is we demonstrate our repentance by how we live. You demonstrate that you have a heart of repentance toward God by the way that you live, by the way that you have godly relationships, by the way that you forsake your own personal sin habits. Sometimes Christians say, or people say they follow Jesus, say they are Christians, but their lives tell a different story. We would say that they're not bearing the fruits of repentance. And this is why we take sin so seriously here at this church. Zacchaeus was taking his sin seriously by demonstrating repentant faith. 
by saying, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor and I'm going to use the rest of what I have to pay back the people who I have defrauded. This was evidence of his faith and repentance. It wasn't that he was saying, I believe and repent. He was demonstrating that through his life. So respond to Jesus through repentant faith. Then in our next passage here, verses 11 through 27, respond to Jesus with ordinary faithfulness. Respond to Jesus with ordinary faithfulness. Listen to this as I read this parable of the ten minas. As they heard these things, the crowd that Jesus is talking to here, and the disciples and so forth, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Respond to Jesus with ordinary faithfulness. So we have a parable here. Again, we don't want to necessarily assume that there's an apples-to-apples correlation between everything in the parable and everything about uh, the, the, the point of the parable. But what we have is the third situation since chapter 18 where Jesus says, you guys are believing something in particular. Let me tell you a story that shows you that, you're, you know, that, that something is true or that you need to change your mind about something else. And so, for instance, we had uh, the parable where Jesus says, I, or where Luke says, Jesus told them a parable to the point that they should pray and not lose heart. And so then you know that that's what that parable is about. Here, they're saying, we think that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, we're 15 miles away, we're almost there. When he gets there, all of our enemies are going to die. We win because our king is going to reign. We have this like political, military victory all of a sudden. The true king has arrived there's going to be a great celebration when we get to Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, mm, not so much. Not, not quite that fast, okay? So let me tell you a parable that shows that that's not the case. And that's what this parable does for us, is it shows that there is a period of time between when the king leaves and when the, return, the king returns to reign in glory. Obviously, this is a parable designed to tell us 
that Jesus will ascend to heaven. Again, a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith that Jesus is not on earth right now. Humanly speaking, he sent his spirit to minister to us. But another fundamental tenet of Christianity is that Jesus will one day return. And what this parable is designed to do is tell you what to do in this in-between time. Like here's when he ascended, here's when he returns, what's supposed to be happening right here? And this parable answers that question. And what you're supposed to be doing while Jesus is not here is responding to him with ordinary faithfulness, taking care of the responsibilities God has given you to do for his glory, for his kingdom. So what we need to realize is if Jesus wanted to, he could have at the moment of our conversion, taken us up to heaven. Like that would not be difficult for Jesus to do. But he left us here. Why are you here right now to steward the king's goods, to steward the goods of Christ? So what does that look like? Those are the kinds of questions we'll need to answer as we go through this passage here. But what you have is some people who respond to this nobleman, which is a person probably of noble birth, probably means he's wealthy, probably means he's kind of in line to be the king, and he goes away to receive for himself a kingdom. Well, there actually was a historical situation where this happened. A guy named Archelaus went to Rome to be kind of like established as king to then come back and rule. So this story would have sounded totally familiar when Jesus gave this this parable, it would have sounded historically familiar to uh, his audience here. But Archelaus was not well-liked. There truly were citizens who did not like him, and they essentially were his enemies because they thought he was a jerk and he shouldn't be ruling over them. But what we have here is Jesus laying out in this parable the fact that he is the king, that he's the one who's going to go away for a while, and then he will come back to reign. And what should you do while he's away? You should take care of his goods. And what he does is he gives you a minna. He gives you, and he gave everybody in this story, the 10 people, the same amount. Essentially saying that, you know, leave the amount out of it. You all have something that you're responsible for. You all have something that you should take care of for the sake of of the king and his kingdom. But people responded to him in a variety of ways. Some people were really faithful with this responsibility. They're supposed to engage in business, and they do that. Here in verse 16, one says, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. That's a super good return. Like This guy clearly knew what he was doing, investing his funds in certain, maybe he knew Amazon was coming down the pike and he put all of his money there. This other guy, okay, five minas. That's a really good return there. Nothing to snuff at. And this other guy's like, hmm, I really don't like this guy. And I think he's kind of a jerk. So I'm going to hide the money away. At least it won't get stolen that way. That's probably his thinking. Like, all I know is I just need to give it back to him when he returns. But what he says, this particular citizen says, really hardly makes any sense at all. Clearly, not everybody thought he was a jerk, the king, right? Because they went about their business, they did their job, and they gave the proceeds back to him when he came. They've realized that this wasn't their minna in the first place. This wasn't their probably three-month sum of money in the first place. They were taking care of it for someone else. 
And essentially what I'm telling you from this passage is God has given each of us a responsibility, a stewardship, something to be faithful with until he comes. In the amount of time that we have, all the days of our lives, whatever that is, something that we are responsible to steward. And what the New Testament says in a variety of ways, in a variety of places, is that stewards must be found faithful. You've got to do your job. You've got to take care of what Christ has given you to do. And you've got to do it in spite of the fact that not everybody likes you for doing it. You notice here that you have people who hate the king. Imagine the conversations that they had with the guy who's like, hey, look, I got 10 minutes back for the one. Like, I clearly went to work to get the most benefit and proceeds out of this I possibly could. And there probably was some kind of clash between these kinds of people. The people who are trying to earn the approval of the king and the people who hate the king. And you realize that's the world we live in right now as well? That there are people who hate Christ and his rule and they want nothing to do with people like us who would submit to his rule? I was reading a, in a, a book about the life of John Newton, who I'll tell you about more in, in coming days. Uh, but this past week, I read this, this statement and thought of this passage. And he's talking about John Newton's, the author is talking about John Newton's um, zeal for godly simplicity. Like, just love God and live your life for him and leave all the other details in your life to him. In other words, this author says, godly simplicity may come across to the world as dated, stale, and foolish, simple-mindedness. Or it may incite jeers and dislike and perhaps even slander and persecution. In the act of exalting God alone, we will, quote-unquote, stain the pride of all human glory. That's a quote from John Newton. We can expect opposition, but this should not throw us Christians off. As Newton states rather bluntly, when the conscience is clear and the heart simple, neither the applauses nor the anathemas of worms are worth two pence per bushel. I love this 17th or 18th century way of saying, I don't care whether you like me or hate me, as long as I know that I have the favor of God shining on my life, that Christ himself is smiling on me because I'm living in a godly, simple way, that's all I need. You can applaud for me or you can hate me, but it doesn't matter. And I love that, that, that statement there. There are two ways to live, and the Christian who seeks to live a life pleasing to God himself, uh, finds himself uncomfortably out of place in this world at times, like a pilgrim. And I just think, Christian, you may feel out of place using the resources God has given you for a kingdom that is currently invisible. But I just want to tell you there are two ways to live. You can bow to this king, or you can hate him. And you can say, he's a jerk. I want nothing to do with him. You have two ways to live. Which way are you going to go? So what does it look like to be a steward of the Lord's resources until he returns? And I would just encourage you to start asking the question, who needs your ministry? When you read the New Testament passages about spiritual gifts, what do you find out they're there for? The benefit of someone else. So how can I put myself in the best position to use the spiritual gifts that God has given me? There's got to be somebody that I can minister to in some particular way. Is there a class I could teach? Is there a Bible study I could lead? Is there a, a ministry I can do behind the scenes because I'm a behind-the-scenes kind of person? And there's always opportunities for those kinds of ministry. 
course, we think of using our finances well, recognizing that God has given us a, a variety of, of means, but uh, whatever that, the means that you have are, you can use them for the glory of God. Perhaps he's given you a different kind of gift to steward. Perhaps he's given you singleness. Use that gift to honor Christ. Perhaps he's given you grandchildren to invest in, to teach the gospel to. You can buy them lots of good resources this Christmas season and send them with books that will fill their minds with beautiful truth, beautifully illustrated often. You may have a house that you can use uh, to invest in. So maybe that's going to mean you use it for dinners with church members and Along with those church members, you're also bringing non-Christians and you're kind of letting them mix and mingle and you're building relationships that way. Perhaps you have an, an abundance of time that you wished you had 20 years ago when you had children living in your home. Now they're, they're grown and they're gone, but you have time now. How can you invest it in, in other people or, or even in your adult children? Do you have uh, the gift of teaching or the gift of hospitality or do you have a particular kind of education that you can use to to develop and serve and invest in other people. Perhaps one way you can respond to this is to consider the fact that the minna God has given you to steward is citizenship here in this area. And I truly am sincere when I say this. I want to urge you to stay here. To not listen to the beckoning call of Pensacola or Phoenix or wherever else that says, man, it's warm and sunny there. Did you know that there are Christians here who need to be encouraged? And you know that there are non-Christians here who need to hear the gospel and need to see it lived out in front of your very eyes? And I am regularly texting, emailing, and sending mail letters, like actual mail letters, to people saying, would you consider moving back here? Would you consider moving here? Period. And doing your job online, because you're already doing it online anyway, could you do it in this context and invest in this society in this neighborhood. But as you read this passage and you think about the responsibility that you have to steward the Lord's resources until he returns to establish his kingdom of peace and glory and righteousness here on earth. Maybe you read this and you think, okay, I, I want to steward my resources well, but the thing that really catches me about this passage is the end of it. Like that just doesn't sit well with me that he judges the people who don't honor him. This does not fly in our society right now. Verse 27, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I understand not liking the sound of that, but what I want to tell you is that this is not new. This is throughout the Bible. You have two ways to live. You can either live for the glory of God or you can experience the judgment of God. And the whole Bible is saying, kiss the Son, bow before Him while there is time. One of the passages I I feel like I quote the most or read the, the most is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people who have a minna say, I don't like this king. I'm not going to serve him. Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And the Lord would simply say, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. 
for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. There are two ways to live. You can bow before this king or you can experience the wrath of this king. And for us as citizens of the kingdom of God who have staked our claim that the Bible is true and have pledged allegiance to Christ alone, we are people who should be telling other people, join this kingdom. This kingdom is glorious. This king is glorious. He is beautiful. Look at how generous he is. He gives this guy ten cities because he did a good job with the responsibility that God gave him. And I think when we read a passage like this and we say, I just really don't like the sound of this judgment, it's probably because we think so immaturely about sin and so immaturely about God himself. So maybe if you are the type who drinks Folgers coffee and you raise your children in a home where you drink Folgers coffee, there are so many problems with this, but um, the, the thing I would say is, Maybe your children are going to grow up with the expectation that that's where coffee comes from. Like, it, it just comes. It's this black powder that comes in a red container. And to get it, you just turn the lid off and pour some in. Now, now you have coffee. And that's the way we think about sin, is like we have such a stunted view of what sin is. Actually, coffee grows on trees, in a few places in the world, like in a narrow band around the world. And they come in cherries. And then you open those cherries up and there's two seeds and you dry those seeds out and then you roast them and then you grind them and then you have this black powder and it's delicious. But if you don't understand where cherries, coffee cherries grow and things like that, like it, you just assume it comes out of a jar. And what I'm saying is sometimes our view of sin is the same way. Like, well, it's kind of bad, like Folgers coffee, but it's, it's not that bad. And what I'm saying is we need to have a more robust, developed view of sin. And we develop that through the Word of God. And if your view of sin is that it's not that big a deal, then yeah, it sounds terrible to have a king who would judge people who would rebel against him. But what's amazing is that before the king would judge those who would rebel against him, he himself was led away like a lamb to the slaughter. He laid down his life in a violent way. Going back to our passage last week, if this doesn't sound disgusting to you, why would it sound disgusting that he would slaughter those who would rebel against him? Jesus said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles, to wicked sinners, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. He went away like a lamb to the slaughter. So before you jump to that judgment part, realize that he took every ounce of the wrath of God upon himself. And so now you get to Choose which way you're going to live. You're going to live the way of Zacchaeus. Get me to Christ as fast as I possibly can. Because I want to serve and honor this beautiful, generous, gracious God. And like I said, sometimes when we read a passage like this, we think, I just really don't like this. Some of it's because we don't view sin seriously. Some of it's because our view of God is so stunted. And so it 
You know, if, if the knowledge of God, what we could know about God is like Niagara Falls in spring after all the snow has melted and it's just pouring over that ledge in New York. That's what the knowledge of God is like. And we're content to push the button on the water fountain and the water, little trickle comes out and we just slurp a few drops of water. We need a more robust view of God. And we get that through reading His Word, through listening to sermons, through singing to one another and to ourselves and to the glory of God. We do that by reading good books, by meditating on God, by journaling about what God has done for us. What I'm saying is there's lots of paths to developing a more robust view of God, most of them essentially related to the Word of God. This is what He's given us so we can know Him. And all this is so that we can see there is a beautiful God behind this kingdom. Yes, it's an invisible kingdom. Yes, the king is currently invisible to our eyes, but we love him and we wait for his return. And again, to this, to this comment about these enemies who would rebel against God, I would just simply ask you to go back and read Genesis 6-9. through The story of the flood. This is not something to decorate your nursery with. This is a war scene where people are killed because of their rebellion against God. This is putting, you know, this story, this parable here, is putting maybe some visible feet to a passage in, in 2 Timothy, or I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians. Let me just read this briefly to you. We don't need to turn there, but it's 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, who talks about Christ who will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day when He returns for His kingdom to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So this is the message of the Bible. Yes, there is judgment for rebelling against the most beautiful, glorious God. But there is also love and there is peace, and there is righteousness, and it's open to you. How are you going to respond to this message? Those men in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, who read that message and laughed and left it alone, really regretted it. Because not long after that, the dam up at that lake just moved out of the way. And the water gushed out of that lake already. The, the, the rivers were swollen. And so I you can just read this, this part here. When the flood came, the wall of water swept through in such a way that it left almost nothing to suggest that there had ever been such a place as Mineral Point, one of the towns on the way down the river to Johnstown. The town was simply shaved off right down to the bare rock. The water moved straight on down the valley, picking up a little speed wherever there were fewer turns to eat up its momentum and slowing down wherever the course began twisting again. What I'm saying is that flood destroyed Johnstown, Pennsylvania and all the other towns in its way. And those men had a message that they had to do something with. But social pressure and other factors kept them from passing it along. And all I want to tell you is the gospel is glorious. Christ himself is glorious. How are you going to respond to this message? If you are already a Christian, we would urge you to walk by faith and in love with Christ. And if you're not a Christian, we would urge you to respond to this message in humility 
ask us after the service, how can I become a follower of Jesus and what's that going to look like in my life? We hold this hope out to you and urge you to turn in faith to Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we see your beauty and we want to know more of the glorious flood that your word tells us about you. And so may we deepen our love for you by deepening our knowledge of you and our understanding of you. May you receive glory from this church, from these lives that are represented here today as we steward the responsibility of being faithful till you come by walking in repentant faith. In Christ's name, amen.